Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. As 2022 drew to a close this past December, American music lost a treasure. Anita Pointer. Alongside her sisters, June, Bonnie, and Ruth, she was a founding member of the Pointer Sisters. To mark her passing, we're replaying my conversation with Ruth and Anita from 2014. The Pointer Sisters were and are legends. Few R&B acts from the 1970s made it through to the 1980s, and fewer got stronger. The Pointer Sisters were already music industry veterans when they had their biggest hits in the mid-1980s. Tracks that are ubiquitous even today, like this one from 1982. The Pointer Sisters made it through the disco era and out the other side because they were always brilliant chameleons. They had pop, R&B, and even country hits in the 70s. They even sang straight jazz. This is a cover of the bebop classic Salt Peanuts. And I would be remiss if I did not mention this absolute stone-cold classic from Sesame Street. Ruth and Anita Pointer join me on the show now. Ruth, Anita, welcome to Bullseye. It's great Hello. to have you on the show. Great to Hello, be here. Hello, thank you. I, um, I have to admit... I was uh, changing from my workout clothes into my work clothes this morning while I'm so excited was playing on my stereo here in my office. And I felt like I was in like a really thrilling film montage. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you wanted wonderful. to work out all over again, didn't you? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was, I was pumped. I was ready to go. It's a good one. Wow. Um, you guys and, and your uh, sisters and brothers grew up in Oakland. Yes. Can you tell me That's a little right. bit about um, what your home was like? Maybe, Ruth, you could start. You're, you're the eldest. Well, it was crowded, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> sure was. I mean, generally, we lived in a two, maybe two and a half bedroom house with six kids, and we always had animals, dogs, cats, birds. And our grandfather. And my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And it was, but it was, you know, we didn't feel like it was anything strange at that time because there was a lot of love in our house and uh, a lot of laughter. Mm-hmm. Both of your folks were ministers, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, they were. Yeah. And that made it a little mm-hmm. tough, but we got around that. Like Ruth said, it was, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had to leave home sometime and we'd, we'd take over. <laughs> They couldn't watch all six of us at one time. As kids, we would try to be ministers, too. 
You know, I, mm-hmm. I did. Ruth did, too. We'd have little <laughs> church services downstairs. <laughs> mother of, Shut up all that noise. And you, and, you know, we had to entertain each other because we didn't have a television for the longest time. Right. And there was only one real uh, mechanical form of entertainment in the house, a radio that my dad owned. And, I mean, he owned it. <laughs> We couldn't you touch didn't it. touch that radio. You better not so. touch that radio. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. And my mom, you know, had one gospel record, Mahalia Jackson, that she pulled out maybe around the holidays that we would play. When you were kids, uh, popular music was changing really, really fast in really huge ways. I mean, you had the birth of rock and roll in the early to mid 50s and then. You know, three, five years later, the birth of soul music. Um, yeah. were, were you completely insulated from that or were you feeling that at, at school and in the world outside your house? Oh, honey, I was feeling it all. <laughs> I was feeling it and wanting to be it. Oh, I'm telling you. Really. It was like be... I was sneaking to to listen to it, mm-hmm. you know. And it was, at, it was during the time when like... The first um, radio transistor radio. Right, and the little and... bitty... Yeah. Dang, those little transistors. I wanted one so yeah. bad. I don't think I ever got one. The first one was radio. big because my brother got one yeah. when he went off to college. I remember right. that big oh cream God. and pink looking thing he had. <laughs> like kids that sit those things up on their shoulders. You like know? the boombox. <laughs> like the boombox. Yeah, right. And I mean, oh my God, the music that, that you could, you know, you could hear without your parents knowing you were listening to it. Yeah. Are we talking about a classic, like underneath the sheets at night type situation? <laughs> well, we didn't have one personally to put underneath the sheets. Right. So it was usually, I usually would hear it at another person's house. Right. Friends' homes, at school. Friends' homes. You know, we'd go to our friends and they would be playing everything. So we, we yeah. they couldn't Even some keep of it my away mother's from friends. What what records do you what records do you remember really moving you as a kid? Ooh. Elvis, Aretha Franklin, yeah, Gladys Knight, yeah, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Supremes, Wonder. the Motown sound, the Philadelphia yeah. sound, you know, all that was just so James Brown, popular. Little Richard, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, yeah, Little Willie John, Sam Cooke, mm-hmm. Eugene Church. <laughs> oh my God, Kim Weston. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, you know, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. It was uh, music that and Marvin Gaye. Ah, oh, it, it was music that would just make us cry. Mm-hmm. It really would. When did you start singing together? In church, as little girls, we sang all yeah. as as long as I can remember. Yeah, we were singing together. You know, yeah. in church. We kind of wanted to, we kind of shook things up at church because we wanted to rock it out a little bit. And <laughs> and we thought that was cool. But some of the members of the church didn't think so. so. What songs were you rocking out and how are you rocking them out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What were some of the songs we said? As Jesus sat there on Mount Olive, disciples came to them proudly saying, what shall we the sign of his coming? Just, you know, things like that. Kind of, they were gospel songs. They were gospel songs, but they were our gospel. church didn't really uh, embrace, you know, a lively gospel sound. Right. It was so... And we had, like I said, we had started going to other people's churches, our, our girlfriends. You know, we had friends that lived in our neighborhood that fathers pastored other types of churches and... 
And we like to go and visit other churches and go to these other churches and people would be rocking out over with tambourines and things that we couldn't, we didn't even have in our church. We only had piano and organ and they would have guitars and and tambourines and and drums and all this. People would be dancing all up and down the aisles. The Ephesians Church of God in Christ had a midnight musical and I mean, like uh, Billy Preston would be there. Yes. yes, it would be the so Kojics. incredible. Oh, my yeah. God. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're replaying my 2014 conversation with Ruth and Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters. Anita died late last year. She was 74. When did you start performing as the as the Pointer Sisters yourselves? In 72, I guess we started our album, and 73, our first album was out. Well, let's take a listen to the first single from that first album. It's called Yes, We Can. It was your yeah. first big hit. Yes. What's interesting is, Yes We Can, in a lot of ways, is, uh, you know, a a relatively straight uh, R&B record from that era. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a little New Orleans-y, a little jazzy. Mm -hmm. Alan Toussaint. But that album is all over the place stylistically. It's every kind of thing. Was that always Mm -hmm. the idea? Yes. And I mean that as a compliment, not as an insult. And we were told we couldn't do that. We were told we didn't want to be pigeonholed. Do that. You got to sing R and B, and that's all you can sing. That was that's what mm-hmm. they told us. And when we brought our first producers, when we brought uh, country music and things like that, they laughed in, in our face. They just laughed like, <laughs> "You girls, oh my god, how do you think you, you are, are black girls and you are have you to sing kidding? black R and B? That's all you can do." <laughs> <laughs> but we showed them. <laughs> So I want to play another song from your first record. It's this song called River Boulevard. And this wow. is, this is, and we're going to start with a little bit from the middle of the song. And this is, this is sort of, has a kind of gospel R&B feeling. Sweet, Sort of by the end of this song, you've gone from, you know, the song starts with a real slow piano build. It goes into that sort of relatively straight gospel Uh R&B thing. And by the end of the song, it is basically full-on psychedelic. Let's take a listen to the end. Pretty much. Take a listen. I know the drums kind of go
Gaylord Burke to lose him in. I know exactly. <laughs> it's spectacular. I, I love it. And Thank you. what I think is really interesting about it is that it goes from that crazy outro where everyone's going wild, everyone's soloing at mm. once. It sounds amazing. Directly into this. Way down up on the Swanee River. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that is such a <laughs> that is such a, a gutsy thing to go oh, yeah. to, to go from uh, to go from this absolutely most contemporary outre sound directly <laughs> to Swanee. Yeah. Praying for me. Where did you even get the taste for that music? God, we always had the taste for that music. We were, we loved that that whole period. You know, Mm. uh, that whole I don't know. We just kind of like had it in our blood. That harmonizing thing that the Andrew sisters did. That you know, groups groups did, and we we were sort of like a group. We're at home and we weren't. We all sang together, so we love that harmony. You also, at the mm-hmm. time, were wearing some absolutely spectacular clothes. Yeah. Spectacular clothes. Yeah. We love those things. Those were our party dresses. And, and when we got ready to do an album cover, David said, the dresses you guys wear to parties and stuff, you, that's what I want you to have on. So we didn't have a stylus. We brought our clothes from our closets and... Yep. That's how we dressed on our first album cover. Describe the clothes that, that you wore back then. I had on a hat, a, a stole that Sister Tires, one of Mother's friends, gave me, and an old suit that we had gotten at an antique store. I love that suit. Oh, my God. I wish mm-hmm. I had it now. <laughs> it was yellow. Suit. Oh, my God. Oh, and some beautiful satin shoes that I bought in London when we were on, on the road with Dave Mason. Mm-hmm. And uh, what did I have on a hat? There are some serious hats on that album cover, if yeah. I remember. I had correctly. Mama's hat on. You had on. Ruthie had a mother's hat, and Bonnie had yep. on a sister's hat. hat, and June had on I think June a sister had on her own hat. hat. Most of our clothes came from attics, and you know when they saw that we were really serious about it, mother's friends started giving us stuff. You know, right. they'd go down in their garages and pull out furs and all this stuff, and just yeah. gave it to us. It was so yeah. wonderful, and then people stole it from us on the road. <laughs> Wait a they did yep. and then all the prices started going up and we couldn't afford it anymore i'm telling you I'm, oh my god it's just horrible did you like, guys know anyone else who was dressed i mean you you were wearing these beautiful dresses from the 30s and 40s um mm-hmm. you know silk and rayon and mm-hmm. we had no idea were there other people walking around in oakland wearing these clothes no, you know i, no, I have there was to not say anybody. I, I don't remember anybody walking around in Oakland, but but I think we can I think we were doing that during a period when that was kind of like the trend because it was during the hippie age when there was so much rebellion um going on, you know, that I, I do remember especially like tops, antique tops being worn with like bell bottom jeans and stuff like that. Then we started being known for just our clothes. And we were really doing too much because we were ch- wanting to change every show, wear a different outfit every show. <laughs> and we like, got just run down with that. We were carrying so many things on the road. I mean, big, our cases would be almost as big as this room. 
<laughs> I mean, really, I don't know how we got them on the plane. They were huge, yeah. big anvil cases, heavy. <laughs> and you could carry them on the plane I know. and not we used get to get charged. <laughs> <laughs> and then the clothes started tearing up. And then we went on the road with Carol Burnett. And, oh, my God, she taught us so much. Because she yeah. took, like, two dresses for the whole tour. It's like a stage play. And that's when I realized, ah, ha, it's a stage play we're doing here. Yeah. We don't have to bring every dress we have. It's not a fashion show, you know. Right. But our audience really took it as that. But we brought we started taking less and less things on the road because you can wear them again. <laughs> you don't have to just, I wore that last week. I can't wear that this week. You're kidding. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We've got more from my conversation with Ruth and Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters still to come. We'll be back after a quick break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're looking back on the life and work of Anita Pointer. She was a founding member of the R&B group, The Pointer Sisters. She passed away at the end of last year. She was 74. Let's get into the rest of my conversation with Anita Pointer and her sister Ruth from 2014. You had a big country hit. Uh, in the early to <laughs> mid 1970s. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, let's take a listen to uh, this song, Fairy Tale. Uh, Anita, I think this is you singing lead, right? Yes, it is. Uh, from, from 1974. And my, my guests are Ruth and Anita of the Pointer Sisters. this song even get end up getting put out as a sing- I mean how did it end up on your album how did it get end up like you're a recording R&B music like how did you convince your label like hey we've got this country record that we'd like you to pitch to country radio David Rubinson loved that song he loved our writing and it's a song that we wrote and he just he t- took us to Nashville he had worked with country musicians before prior to moving to California and he took us to Nashville, and and we ended up with the Grand Ole Opry musicians playing on it. Yeah, he and, really made uh, it authentic. That's yeah, what I think what and made he, it acceptable. And it was, you know, a song that was from the heart. So he he really loved it. He really, when he heard it, he was like, "Oh my God, I love this!" And the band got mad because they didn't want to play. Country they didn't music. want to play it. They didn't want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, oh, David got God. it through there. It was a it was a top twenty pop hit. And you ended up singing it on the Grand Old Opry. Yeah. And I wonder, 
what it was like to to sort of step out on that stage that is both the most hallowed place in country music and just one of the world's whitest places. <laughs> it was terrifying. <laughs> it really was. I, I don't even, I barely remember the whole event because I was so right. out of my mind. Even right. David, after I talked to him later, years later, and he said, you know, when you guys went to Nashville, I, we had to rush you into the building because there were protesters outside. They didn't want you to be there. They had signs up saying, keep country music country and all this stuff. And and I didn't even know. I didn't, I just, I never saw any of that. Right. I never saw it. We went in and we were nervous as hell. And we did our song. And that's when the guy actually honestly did get up in the audience and say, hot damn, them gals is black. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. screamed that from the audience. Yeah. <laughs> And so, like, not accusingly, just revelatory. Like, he yeah, just was like, "Wait like, a minute, I'm putting it all together right? now." Exactly. There they are. And then he said, "Sing it again, honey." <laughs> yep. So he liked us. He liked us, you know. But it was just such a scary situation. One thing I remember about the performance was I love the way they don't wait till the end of the song to applaud if they like it. Uh huh. They start clapping right in the middle of the song. <laughs> You know, and I love that. I was yeah. just like, we're giving you our approval now before it's over. I, I want to play a song from Steppen from 1975. And this is a song that is one of my mom's all time favorites. So I would feel mm -hmm. I, I would feel remiss if I didn't play it. Mm -hmm. um, and this was one of the last real jazzy uh, sort of early mid 20th century songs that you recorded. It's called Save the Bones for Henry Jones. <laughs> We'll eat some food that's rare And at the head of the table I'll place Brother Henry's chair Invite all the local big dogs We'll laugh and talk and eat But we'll save the bones for Henry Jones Cause Henry don't eat no meat my mom sings that song around the house when there's a vegetarian coming over to <laughs> I love it. That is such a great song. It's, we heard, we learned wow. that song as kids. Yeah. Our play brother, David Patterson, used yeah. to sing that song sing that all the song time. Around around. I don't know where he got it from. I don't know. It's I, just don't, old. I don't either. But he used to sing it to us. Yeah. And we just thought that we wanted to sing it. And mm -hmm. David thought it was a great idea. And it's... I guess around the time when a lot of people were becoming vegetarians, too. <laughs> mm. I want to play the first single of the second version of the Pointer Sisters. Um, Bonnie left the group for a solo career in the um, late 70s, 77, 76. 78. Yeah. 76. Yeah. Um, and... And you in in your album from 1977 is a great album, but uh, didn't have any hit records on it really. And you sort of reformed in a completely different form in 1979. And the first single from that record was a song by Bruce Springsteen um, called "Fire." And this is uh, one of my guests, Anita Pointer, on the lead. We also have Ruth Pointer of the Pointer Sisters on the show right now. Let's take a listen. I say I don't like it, but you know I'm a liar. Cause when we kiss, ooh, 
It's a song that he, I read anyway, originally wrote for Elvis Presley. Really? Well, the, the demo sounded like Elvis. I mean, when mm. you hear the song, you can imagine Elvis singing. Elvis actually yeah. recorded your song, Fairy Tale. Mm-hmm. Right. It's such a different thing from where you had been five years previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such, it's, a, it's such a different thing also from uh, the disco that at the time was still ascendant. And that your your sister Bonnie had had a couple of disco hits right around the same time, mm-hmm. um, and, and I wonder if you could tell me about what it was like to sort of tear down your image and rebuild it in a new form. Well, we kind of felt we needed a new image when Bonnie left. We decided to come up with something different so they wouldn't compare, you know, the two. And Fire was brought to us by Richard Perry. And uh, he was a producer. Yes, the producer of the the last few years that we recorded. And I, I listened to it. I said, "God, that's too low for me." Maybe I guess he wants Ruthie to sing it. (laughs) He said, "No, I want you to sing it." So it became our first gold single. We had had gold albums before, but I didn't realize what a difference a gold single made. Because it's a song that's played, that one song, over and over and over and all over the world. And it really became a major hit for us and made a total difference in our career. Yeah. What were the dynamics like in the group at the time? Because Bonnie had left, and I know June uh, June had mental health issues that meant that she was... In and out. In and out. It was Ruthie and me and me, Ruth, and and June. Yeah. And Nita for many, many years. Yeah, well, like thirty years after Bonnie left, it was it was initially Anita just going to be you and Ruth, right? And then mm-hmm. you and then you sort of brought June back into the fold, mm-hmm. right? We found Richard Perry, me and Ruth, and um, he told us if you can get June back in, we got a deal. Yeah. So we went after her because she was upset because Bonnie had left. And, well, Bonnie's leaving, I'm leaving. And so we <laughs> talked her into it, and, and she came and met with Richard. And it was just all beautiful after that because he loved her voice. He loved her, and she was just so vital for us. Oh, my God. It was yeah. just the perfect combination, you know. And, uh, <sighs> yeah. When it works, it works. Mm-hmm. There you go. It's hard for me to imagine being in a group as long as the two of you have, and even less so being in a group with family for that long. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if I if I think of my mom and her sisters, who are pretty much exactly the same generation as you guys are, mm-hmm. um, and I try and imagine them having been in a music group together, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you know, they love each Somebody other. Somebody would be killing the other one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, it's not easy, and it's no, it's, it's mo- not easy. But it's the most wonderful thing you could ever have, because you know, I, I couldn't. Being out there on that road can be really lonely and and depressing and stressful, and to have someone out there you know cares about you from the heart that that makes yeah. a difference. Yeah, somebody really that does. really gets you, really knows you. Mm-hmm. You know, knows when to back off. Mm-hmm. When to come on and say, come on, let's do this. And knows, knows when, when I'm to feeling say, weak we don't have and she'll to do come this. over we on stage and lift me up. <laughs> like our last literally. show. I was, literally, I was very sick in, in New Year's. And, and Ruthie saw that I was feeling weak. She came over and just put her arms around me. And we sang like that because I really needed her support. 
and she just automatically did it, you know, and that's that's the kind of thing someone will do that loves you. Yeah. We're taking a break. We'll be back in just a second. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Okay, zebras, uh, orangutans. Oh, yes, sorry. Hi. I'm not used to the animals talking. Uh, Who are you? Yes, my name is Carrie Poppy. I co host a podcast called Ona Ross and Carrie. This is my co host, Ross, right here. Okay. We investigate spirituality, claims of the paranormal. And we were wondering if we could get on the ark. You did come two by two. I Thank appreciate you. that. Though most of the things I'm letting on the ark don't talk. I'm going to be talking all up on this boat. Do you mind both? I prefer ark. Or okay, barge. I'm not listening, but. If you let me on, mm-hmm. then I will make my really good podcast on your boat. Can you barge. at least help clean up all the poop? I guess I don't see why not. Well, I'll check out the podcast. Where do I find it? It's on MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening to my 2014 conversation with the Pointer sisters, Ruth and the late Anita Pointer. How how much of a problem was um, uh, substance use for you guys, especially at the, you know, when the music industry was like just passing bowls of cocaine left and right, and I'm telling in you. limousines was also the <laughs> peak of your careers. <laughs> when I moved to LA, I was shocked. I swear, it's just so prevalent. It was just everywhere, you know. And I, I just this is when. When did you move to LA? Uh, 79, I think, or it was after the last album with David Rubinson, and then I moved here. It was a, I I mean, it was so prevalent and so around, I mean, even from the late, I guess the late 60s even, you know, uh, seemed like just everybody was doing it and it was so natural that you just didn't think much of it you didn't mm-hmm. think much of doing it you didn't think much of the people around you that were doing it it was just that was just it was there all the time and uh i always feel like we were very very lucky to even have survived through that time because it was everywhere tell me uh, tell me about how how you realized that you know, things needed to change. Like when you became aware of it rather than having it just be something that was always around. I became aware of it when I started getting sick. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was on the road. We were in Atlantic City and I was was very sick and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And uh, I went to the hospital. I knew I had a horrible headache that wasn't going away for like days. Mm -hmm. And uh, went to the hospital, and they said, you have got viral meningitis. And I was like, whoa. So it scared us they threw me in the hospital. And I remember the doctor saying to me, um, whatever your lifestyle is right now needs to change because your immune system is really beat up. And uh, there was an epidemic I did learn that was going around in New Jersey of meningitis at that time where some animals had had died and mm. a couple of people even that had the disease. And I caught it because my immune <laughs> system was, was just low. Mm-hmm. And I started, you know, reconsidering how I was handling my health, you know, because I'm thinking, why is my immune system low? Basically, because I was not paying any attention to, you know, what I was eating, what I was putting in my body, 
you know, getting proper rest and all of that. I was just kind of living for the moment and jumping up on stage doing shows and, and you know, doing coke and smoking weed and drinking a lot of alcohol. And it was it was crazy. And Ruth, and, you, you had two kids before you were even in the Pointer Sisters. Yeah. So you had, when this happened to you and you got really sick, you had three kids at home, right? Two yeah, teenagers three, and a... I had three children by the time. Issa was a baby. Issa was six years old, I believe. And uh, that was another, you know, uh, thing that made me think about the way I was living my life was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I felt baby. like I, I, I really could be a better role model for my children, <laughs> you know, than what I was being, you know. What was the most difficult thing about about getting out of that old life for you, Ruth? Getting uh, getting out of it, the most difficult thing was being was continuing to be um, around other people socially that didn't seem to have the problem that I did. You know, I, I always hated being different. Even as a kid, I hated being a preacher's kid because all my friends were doing things that I really wished I could be doing, but my parents didn't allow it. And now here I was, you know, being around people that seemed to be having a lot of fun, you know, drinking and partying and doing stuff. And I couldn't do it because I had I didn't know how to control myself. <laughs> and I overdid it. And um, I had to really, really distance myself from a lot of people, a lot of people, even family members. And uh, I moved away and just you know, started concentrating on trying to be healthy. I went from being a crazy drug addict to being a crazy health nut. <laughs> Literally. I mean, I made people mm -hmm. sick. Though. <laughs> she is. She's so strict with the her diet. That I would it's stop just doing, unbelievable. You know? You know, and I saw this around me, and I, I, I mean, I had no choice but to stop. It just makes no sense anymore, you know? Yeah. So— your sister June was in was in the group with you and um, uh, was, from what I've read, bipolar. Um, and drug use is is really difficult for people with bipolarity to manage, um, because, among other things, everything that's good about using drugs for people who use drugs, all the good feelings that they get out of them, are. Um, bigger for people who are um, manic mm. and um, you know, people also often use drugs to, you know, self-medicate to manage their mm -hmm. the symptoms of bipolarity. Um, and I wonder how the two of you felt having someone who was really struggling with her health in this group with you, especially when you were, you know, when you were tour when you were doing all the things that a that a band has to do, you know, mm -hmm. touring and recording and Well that yeah. was even harder after Bonnie left because, you know, even the years with the three years we were together with, with all four of us, she was in and out, you know, but we had the three, so it always worked. But and we never heard of bipolar. I'd never heard that word before. Right. You know, and I didn't know exactly what it was that my sister was going through. 
Yeah. And I couldn't, I didn't understand it. And we, she went to doctors and she said she didn't want to take these, this, um, the prescription drugs and stuff. She said, I don't want to take this stuff. So she wouldn't take it. And I, I didn't know what to do. I really didn't. We just kept her close, you know, and, and protected her as much as we could. Mm-hmm. But... It's a scary position yeah, it was, to be it in. was a hard time because, you know, like Anita said, the, 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 the medical technology hadn't kicked in the way it has today where they have all these diagnoses for mental illness, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, I mean, there are a lot of things that, that happened that we had no knowledge about, you know. And um, it, it was just very hard, you know. We just had to love her and... And like, you know, like you said, try to protect her as much as possible. But she was a grown woman and we couldn't make decisions for her. Mm-hmm. Did she ever stop using? Mm-mm. I don't think so, no. No. And in the end, when she had cancer, I didn't, you know, the doctor said she was all through her body. And uh, I think she knew it. And she just yeah, didn't want to did go through the pain of, you know chemo and all yeah. that crap. Because I don't see how she was even still standing. Yeah, I don't know. Once we saw those x-rays, I was, we were like, whoa, how mm. is she even standing? She's got to be in a lot of pain, but, you know, it was just very, very hard. And she still looked beautiful. I, I heard that when when she was really at, at her sickest, um, she couldn't talk. Uh, no, that's she true. Couldn't talk she anymore. couldn't swallow and she couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. But you um, sang to her. We sang, sang to her, to her and, and, and she did. would, and she would and she mouth was, to us, "I uh-huh. love you." She was we could always understand when she was saying, "I love you." Uh-huh. You know, so she was surrounded by love up until you know, right up, right through the last moments of her life. Your um, your sister uh, Bonnie has also had substance abuse issues throughout her life, and yeah, um, the last few years she's performed with you guys sometimes, and mm-hmm. um, uh, often not. Um, is it is it tough to know what um, what to do about your you know? grown sister that you love that you probably love singing with mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's tough to know what to do yeah I love her to death she's just getting out of rehab and um, she's doing incredible she's sober <laughs> you know and she I, I've seen a big change in her and I'm so happy for her and I just hope she continues you know but yeah, it's hard to know, you know, mm-hmm. how to how to deal with it because you just it's tough hanging on. The you know, the easiest part is getting sober. The hardest part is staying sober. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've 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 really been, you know, I've dealt with with the whole issue um for a lot of years even with my two older children. So, you know, one day there's sober a couple of weeks they're sober and the next week they're back out again and you know and you 
you keep getting your trust violated over and over again to the point where you just don't know, you know, what to believe. So that's the part that makes it very, very difficult. You want to believe in them. You want to trust and you want them with you. But, you know, you, you have to think about your own life and the issues that you have in your own life, too, that could be very quickly and very easily taken away. Well, how does it feel when you're singing on stage with your sister Bonnie now? It's like we never stopped. <laughs> yeah, we we haven't sang with her in a while. and um, We did some studio work with beautiful. her in L.A. not too long ago, and it's like we never stopped. Mm, it's just we magic. We jumped right we, back into the harmonies that we always knew. Yeah. It's I magical. It, it really I is. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, the two of you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to talk to you. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was great to be here. Ruth and Anita Pointer are of the Pointer Sisters. Um, thanks again. Thank, Thank you. you. Ladies and gentlemen, children too. Ruth and Anita Pointer, the Pointer Sisters, from 2014, one of my favorite interviews in the entire history of this show, Uh, absolute R&B legends, genuine personal favorites of mine since I can remember. Jump was my first favorite song. Anita Pointer will be sorely missed. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here in Los Angeles, my producer Kevin Ferguson was driving his car when the driver in front of him threw a banana peel out the window. Kevin drove over it and was very glad that Mario Kart is not real. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJ W, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Our thanks to The Go Team and to Memphis Industries, their label, for sharing it with us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Follow us. We'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.